Hello, and thanks for joining us for the October 2016 episode of the Poverty Research and Policy Podcast from the Institute for Research and Poverty at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm Dave Chancellor. This episode features Stephen Durloff, an economist at the University of Wisconsin and a longtime IRP affiliate. He also co-directs the Human Capital and Economic Opportunity Working Group at the University of Chicago. IRP, as the original U.S. Poverty Research Center, was founded in 1966 and marks its 50th anniversary in 2016. So when I sat down with Professor Durlov, I asked him to help us think about how poverty and poverty research has changed over that time period and where he thinks future research might stand to make the biggest difference in the lives of the poor. It's useful to think about how poverty has qualitatively changed, not in terms of its direct harms, but rather in terms of the mechanisms that underlie its breadth and its persistence. What I believe is true about contemporary poverty and is being reflected in contemporary research and will uh, expand is that poverty is a much harder phenomena to combat in 2016 than in 1966. Now, the reason I say that is that many of the factors underlying poverty, such as uh, levels of racial discrimination, the absence of functioning uh, civil rights laws collectively defined, those there have been dramatic successes with respect to them. Second is uh, you know, doc- actually very well exposed by uh, Christopher Jenks in a New York Review of Books article a couple of years ago. If one looks at the post-transfer poverty rates in the United States in the last half century, they have very dramatically declined. Uh, third, I think that on many dimensions one can identify egalitarian enhancing policies which uh, have facilitated upward mobility for for many disadvantaged people. So with that as the background, and maybe let me just be clear, this is not about blaming the poor or saying that uh, the government uh, no longer has a role. It's merely an argument that in understanding poverty, one in the 21st century, so to speak, needs to think somewhat differently. Durloff says that in terms of how we think about poverty in the 21st century, We need to think about how U.S. inequality and the passing of poverty from one generation to the next is driven by a sort of what he calls segregation, but perhaps not in the way we traditionally think of the term. And what I mean by that is that individuals, at least in sort of the metaphor that I would work with, have memberships in different groups, and these groups have causal influences, are mechanisms that, uh, that deeply affect them. Now, the link with the psychological literature would be the, uh, the, cheap, the easiest example of a, uh, of a group, and that is parents and the extent to which, and Christian Schwartz at uh, UW Sociology has worked on this, for example, a sort of mating by socioeconomic background or, more importantly, education, that in and of itself becomes a mechanism that would decrease the rate of social mobility. Now, certainly nobody wants to interfere with marriage markets, but at, one, at least the observation one starts with is to recognize that the way that people sort themselves, even at the most primitive group level, which is marriages, will have consequences for thinking about poverty and disadvantage. Dirloff says that this idea of memberships is especially important when considering the neighborhoods that people live in. Empirical evidence is becoming increasingly compelling on the mechanism that maps the characteristics of a community in which somebody grows up into uh, their, uh, their development and long-term socioeconomic outcomes. But that means by implication is the extent to which communities are segregated by race or segregated by income, that that will become a mechanism by which persistent inequality emerges because the contemporary inequality 
which leads to greater segregation of individuals, then means that children have more disparate backgrounds and other or disparate exposures to the neighborhoods than otherwise, and that then becomes a, a vicious circle. And while neighborhoods are also closely linked to the K-12 through education that children will have access to, Durloff also sees this type of segregation having important ramifications at the post-secondary level. And there I would emphasize that the heterogeneity in college quality is clearly first order in the extent to which one has socioeconomic background leading to segregation by type of college, or to be blunt, ability, however defined by college, that's going to create, again, disparate experiences and hence uh, uh, disparate longer-term outcomes. Professor Durloff also suspects that shifts in the workplace, especially those connected to technological change, may have important implications for the way that groups with different skills become isolated from one another. So let me at least give you a metaphor, and again I want to make clear this is uh, speculative. If we think about the Ford Motor Company as a paradigmatic American company in 1966, then what one might say is one of its interesting features is that you had workers of different skill levels, different occupational types, all interacting to produce a product. And so again there's a coupling, so to speak, of, uh, of, of different types of workers. But in the 21st century, Microsoft's a very different creature. And an interpretation of uh, the effect of globalization, technological change, all of these, these aspects of labor markets, is that one sees that uh, what David Otter's called the hollowing out of certain occupations. But the way that I would think about it is that you have an uh, increasing isolation of highly skilled workers who are very well compensated from the rest of the population. That's not sociology as much as standard economics of comparative advantage, but nevertheless, it is another dimension along which it's the segregation of individuals into into uh, trajectories that aren't coupled in some way that that I believe is is essential in understanding contemporary inequality. Now, when it comes to research related to poverty and inequality in this context. Durloff says that much of it falls into two different categories or strands. In organizing that, I think I might say that much of this research is developing a richer psychological framework for understanding poverty and disadvantage. And another strand, which is the area that I personally work in, has to do with social determinants. So to play this out a bit, there's increasing evidence of the importance of early childhood investment on long-run socioeconomic outcomes. And so the work by Nobel laureate James Heckman, who I work with, though not, not on this, that, that body of research, which has expanded uh, you know, throughout the social sciences, is documenting essentially how both standard cognitive uh, measures of skill as well as socio-emotional skills are deeply influenced by the experiences of, of children. One can correlate that, that those facts with uh, observations such as the uh, massive gap in exposure to words that opens up between children in disadvantaged homes versus others by the age of three. Or one can uh, look at calculations that focus on the abilities of families to invest in their children, uh, creating a nurturing environment, not just through financial uh, types of, uh, of investment, but in, t- in terms of time. Durloff says in thinking about policy interventions designed to combat poverty and inequality, he sees these early childhood investments as particularly promising because they have the potential of being very beneficial relative to their cost. There's a very high bang for buck with properly constructed early childhood interventions. Now, it's easy for me to say properly constructed, but that what that phrase means is there's been 
no end of early childhood interventions. And if one were to just graph the, uh, the efficacy or some measure of the efficacy, you'd get a lot of different results. I believe the right metaphor is, is finding the right vaccine. So in other words, the fact that some of early childhood, uh, early childhood interventions haven't been efficacious is not necessarily suggestive that, uh, that they are not in general. And so really the two points I would put there are, number one, that from the vaccine perspective, it doesn't matter what the composition and intensity of the program is. Second, many of the negative results on these programs have to do with measurements of, uh, of IQ or something like that. And that's not really not the thing we're talking about. We're talking about thriving, flourishing lives, and it's that focus on the outcomes where one has much more compelling evidence that early childhood programs work. Although Professor Durloff believes that early childhood investments may be the clearest example of a cost-effective public policy informed by research, he notes that research related to the psychological aspects of poverty, such as that by Sendel Melanathan and his colleagues, can have important implications for informing public policy. Having to navigate life under uh, with the stresses of disadvantage delimits the capacity for decision making of the type that would uh, would allow one to uh, to to make economic progress. Now, that's a much less developed area in terms of what one can say with certainty, but again, that's suggestive that a vision of individuals and their psychological development and their psychological capacities is, I think, essential in understanding disadvantage. Thanks to Stephen Durlaw for talking with us. Check out his website if you'd like to learn more about his research on these topics. You can also catch our new episodes of the Poverty Research and Policy Podcast by subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. You can also listen to our past episodes on the IRP website. Thanks for listening to a podcast from the Institute for Research and Poverty.